Last week, we took a look, really, we only got through uh, verse 13, verse 14 of this passage, and I really wanted to take some time to set the background of what was happening, what exactly Zechariah was doing in the temple, what was the significance of uh, the angels showing up at this moment in redemptive history. And we talked about how the significant part of this passage is really that God is speaking for the first time in 400 years. This is the first time we're going to see a miracle in 800 years, and this is the first time an angel is going to show up in 500 years. And interestingly enough, the last time that an angel showed up, he showed up to the prophet, Zechariah. And now that angel is again appearing to another priest who is also named Zechariah. And so you have all these really cool parallels between Old Testament and really the start of the New Testament. Uh, something uh, a lot of you guys might know about me, for those of you who know me, as an activity I really like is going and shopping around used bookstores. It's one of my favorite things to do, and it's not just because I enjoy annoying my wife. It is because I actually really like going and exploring and finding these really treasured books that other people have really passed off. And something that's interesting about used bookstores is you can find all these golden books that really no one knows the value of. In fact, when I was uh, with my brother in North Carolina this past winter break, we went to a few used bookstores, and we happened to find uh, the Interpreter's Bible Commentary, a complete Bible commentary set, for $25 being sold at this used bookstore. Something that is hundreds and hundreds of dollars in value, and people just don't know it. So they pass over it, they're going for novels or romantic books or things like that. But it was just sitting there, this great value that was passed over by everyone else. And everyone was looking at it, touching it, it was changing hands, but no one really saw the value in it. It was very underrated in terms of its worth. And of all the people that we meet in the New Testament, I don't think there's anyone who's as underrated and as undervalued by modern-day Christians as John the Baptist is. So I wanted to take a whole week just looking at John the Baptist, what he came to do, what his purpose in this world was, and how his mission does not end with him but really starts with him and is continued on by modern-day Christians. Last week, we took a look at the answered prayer that the angel is giving to Zechariah. Zechariah goes into the uh, temple to burn incense, he gets visited by an angel, and the angel says, don't be afraid, I'm going to bring you good news, your prayer has been answered. And we talked about what that prayer was, it's a two-fold fulfillment, it's an answer to the personal and intimate prayer of Zechariah and his wife from a long time ago, something they'd stopped praying for a period of time. So the Lord remembered their prayer and he's answering it now in this moment. But we also know that there's a second prayer that is being answered by the people because of the answer that the angel gives him, he says, this child who you're going to have is going to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Jewish Messiah who's going to come and finally redeem his people. And so this is an answered prayer that the Jewish people have been praying now for hundreds of years. And at the moment that that incense is being burned, all the people outside would have been making this prayer, raising this prayer to heaven as well. So it's a twofold fulfillment. And what's interesting about that prayer is that this is not the first time in redemptive history. In fact, it's not even really a unique thing that we see in redemptive history for the Lord to answer prayers both intimately and corporately. The Lord often works on large, massive scales by working intimately with his people and meeting their felt needs on the ground at a very personal level. And we can see this all the time in redemptive history, but I just wanted to point out a few of those exact moments. In fact, all of the moments I'm going to mention are couples that struggle with barrenness. The Lord answers their prayer and then this is moving redemptive history forward in pretty significant ways. The first one is in the patriarch, Abraham. You'll remember that him and his wife struggled with barrenness for a long period of time, Abraham and Sarai. 
And then the Lord visits them and he says, you're going to have a child about this time next year. And Sarah laughs at him, laughs at the Lord. And then he calls her out for it and she denies it. But uh, a year later, the Lord revisits them and she has had a child. And this is an amazing move in redemptive history. But it says uh, later in the New Testament that Abraham and Sarah were both dead. They were as good as dead. Their bodies were old and there's no way they were going to have a child. But the Lord moves in this miraculous and significant way to allow them to have children. So that was in redemptive history with the patriarchs. And then if you get into the book of 1 Samuel, chapters 1 and 2, you find the prophet Samuel was conceived out of a unique prayer by his mother, Hannah, where she, who struggled with barrenness for a period of time, prays to the Lord. He answers her prayer. She uniquely dedicates this prophet to the Lord, and he serves the Lord faithfully and actually issues in the era of the kings. He judges Israel faithfully, and then he issues in the kings who we then get to find David through that moment in redemptive history. And then in Judges chapter 13, a little bit before this, we find another example of the Lord moving to bring a child to a barren family. In this case, it's, the, it's Samson who gets born to Manoah and his wife. And again, it's the Lord moving in a unique way to bring a barren woman and a barren husband children. And so the Lord is commonly doing this in scripture. And it shouldn't really surprise us at this moment that a barren womb is being healed because a God who is in the business of making dead hearts alive could certainly have no difficulty making dead wombs bring forth life. So he's healing in all these miraculous ways. He's proving his healing ability. He's proving his ability to produce new life where it didn't exist before. And so this is no problem for God. But then the unique birth that he's bringing forth in, the John, in John the Baptist has a unique place in redemptive history because John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's really the last one to come before Jesus. And then in the New Testament, they usher in this new kingdom movement of the disciples and the apostles moving forward in the kingdom of God. So John the Baptist really stands as the last of these prophets in the Old Testament. But we find him here in the New Testament ushering in Jesus Christ. The word in this passage, if you look down with me at verse 15, that uh, we get as a descriptor of John the Baptist, is he will be great before the Lord. It says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And why will they rejoice? For he will be great before the Lord. Greatness before the Lord looks very different than greatness before the world. The word here in Greek is megas. It means Uh, In its singular form, Jesus is described as great. He needs no qualifying statement. God is described as great. He needs no qualifier. When people are described as great, they're described as being great before the Lord. They have a qualifying statement there. So what this means is in God's judgment and his assessment of John the Baptist and what his ministry is going to produce, he is declared to be great, that he's going to be great. And the angel says this as a prophecy before John is ever even born. And so there's a few important things that we can take away from this. But first, I want to take some time to define greatness. If you ask someone in the world what greatness looks like, what success looks like, they would typically list something along the lines of achieving power. To achieve power is to become great. In fact, if you want to be great, you have to achieve power. Whether that's power over others or power in corporate structure, you need to achieve some level of influence over other people. That would be to become great. Another way you could define greatness is by achieving wealth. To have wealth is to have influence. To have influence is to have power. To have power is to be great, according to the world. Another way to be great is to garner a lot of respect. There's been people in history who have very little wealth and maybe very little 
power over others, but because they command respect, they then command a following and they leave this legacy of greatness behind them. And so you could have power, you could have wealth, you could have respect, you could have success in a certain career. We see this with professional athletes all the time, where they have success in this very unique and niche field. And because of their very unique type of success, they can be considered great by people who maybe follow that sport closely. So greatness can be defined in all of these terms. And I actually think that that is a really good definition of greatness. The problem is not how they're defining greatness. The problem is they're defining this type of greatness in relation to worldly success or worldly power or worldly wealth. To be great before the Lord is to have power, but it's to have the power of God flowing in and through you and moving in might. To be great before the Lord is to have wealth, but it's to have wealth that God defines as being wealthy and storing up your treasures in heaven because that is where treasure does not rot. To be great before the Lord is to have respect. It's to have respect of other saints in your community. It's to have the respect of God when he calls John the Baptist great before the Lord. And to be great is to have success, as long as that success is defined as kingdom-advancing success. Not a success for personal glory, for personal gain. Success for the purpose of God's glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. Greatness defined by power, wealth, respect, and success is not a bad thing. It's a good definition, but it depends on who that power, wealth, and success is terminating on. If it terminates on an individual, it's not great. It's great by the world standards, just not in terms of the Lord. And here we're talking about John being great before the Lord. That's a very key distinction. And there's a few things uh, that we can look at, but first I would like to flip over to Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, and we will be in verse 7. And Jesus is telling, uh, he, he first answers a few questions from John the Baptist's disciples. At this point, John the Baptist is in prison, and we'll talk a little bit about why in just a minute. But he talks to John the Baptist's disciples, he answers their questions, and then he turns to his disciples after John the Baptist's disciples leave, and he starts teaching them about John the Baptist and who he is and what he came to do. And this is what Jesus has to say about John the Baptist. Starting in verse 7, I'm going to start with the quote. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? He says, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Jesus is making a distinction here. You didn't go out to see someone who is defined as great by the world. John the Baptist does not have soft clothing. What then did you go out to see? Verse 9, a prophet. Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. There's a lot to unpack in that passage. There's a passage that's similar in Luke. There's a passage that's similar to this in Mark. I want to take a look at the Matthew passage specifically because it's really right to the point. It doesn't have any of the other details that the Mark and the Luke passage have on this. He says, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And as the angel tells us, this is great in the sight 
of the Lord. It's a very important statement. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what really is the extent of John the Baptist's greatness? What are really the key attributes that make him defined as great before the Lord? In what ways does he achieve power, wealth, respect, success? How does he do those things? And I really think it boils down to really three key points, and that's going to be the three kind of guardrails that we're going to have tonight as we work through this passage. The first is his personal holiness. Being great before the Lord requires personal holiness. And John the Baptist extremely models how to have personal holiness. You cannot be great before the Lord if you do not have holiness before God. The second thing that governs John the Baptist's greatness is his unique calling. He is unique in redemptive history, and that's why Jesus can say, there is no one born of women who's been greater than John the Baptist. It is a unique calling that he has. And then thirdly, we can say he's great because of his missional impact for the kingdom, his mission impact. And we'll see each of these in turn in this passage, starting with his personal holiness. So if you flip back with me to the passage that we were in, Luke, we're going to pick it up again in verse 15. It says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That verse, verse 15, really outlines what John the Baptist's personal holiness is going to look like. It says that he will be great before the Lord, he must not drink wine or strong drink. Now, some people would parallel this, and rightly so, with the Nazarene vow that you can find in the book of Numbers. The Nazarene vow, if you don't know, is someone who abstains from the consumption of wine. They don't cut their hair. They live a life that is of self-denial. And although John the Baptist isn't necessarily taking the Nazarene vow, he does take on at least one component of that vow, which is to not have wine or strong drink, which means he is to forgo the pleasures of the world for the sake of the kingdom. His mission is too important to be bogged down in any way by worldly pleasures. Not to say that those worldly pleasures are bad things. In other places in scripture, Jesus, when he's performing at the wedding feast, he produces wine. It's an abundance of God's glory on this earth to give his people this abundance of the earth. But John the Baptist has a unique calling and that he's to forgo these unique worldly pleasures for the sake of the kingdom. This is a mark of personal holiness. His life is going to be marked by self-denial, piety towards the Lord. He is going to be so consumed with the mission of God that he's not even going to have much of an appeal to the pleasures of this world. In fact, we know from other descriptors that he was someone who wore rough clothing. He didn't wear soft clothing. By his diet, eating locusts and honey, we know that he didn't care much for taste or flavor. He was on mission for God, and that is all that he cared about. His life is marked by this drive towards personal holiness. Self-denial is a marker of personal holiness. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. To deny yourself is one aspect of the pursuit of personal holiness. And God cannot use vessels that are not holy. To be used by God mightily requires you to be holy first and foremost. If you look at the qualifications for ministry in 1 Timothy, you will see this list of qualifications, and one of those qualifications is they must be able to teach and preach. All the other qualifications are in regard to personal character, personal holiness, rightness before the community, rightness before the Lord. He cares much about your holiness. In fact, if you want to know what the will of God is for your life, holiness is a primary concern. 
Holiness is of primary concern. You can take whatever career you want, granted that it doesn't lead you into sin. But if it does lead you into sin, that the will of the Lord is not that you take that career or that job or that opportunity, but that you abstain from those things and pursue holiness. Jesus says, you are to be holy as I am holy. It's a high calling. So personal holiness, this is an external marker of his holiness before the Lord, his ability to deny himself and to deny worldly pleasure. That's an external marker. But then we have to ask ourselves the question, by what power is he doing these external signs of holiness? And the answer comes in the second part of that statement in verse 15. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. To be holy before the Lord, to be declared as great before the Lord, requires you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. No one can be considered great before the Lord. No one can be holy before the Lord without first being converted to faith, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a unique case in redemptive history, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit before he's even born. In fact, we get the account of that story later in this book, later in chapter 1 of Luke, where John uh, meets Jesus while they're both in the womb together. And it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he begins his prophetic ministry making forward the way of the Lord. And in a unique case, the Holy Spirit comes upon someone and regenerates life into them before he's even born. This is a unique case in redemptive history. John the Baptist is unique in this way. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a sign of conversion. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, we get the, the apostles who are then filled with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit comes down on them. And it is at this point that they start their earthly ministry, that they begin going out and teaching the gospel. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They can now do all kinds of things. They can do miracles. They can speak in tongues. They can heal people. They can preach boldly the gospel, which they were previously denying. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit, they can forgo all of these earthly pleasures. So that is the internal seal of God on someone's life. If you don't have the internal seal, if, you don't, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you cannot produce the fruit of the external seal, self-denial. In fact, to try to do so is described in other places of Scripture as religiosity, a false religion which the Pharisees are called out for time and time again because they have no internal seal, but they're trying to fake it. John the Baptist is not faking his self-denial. He is on mission for the Lord, and so it is not really much of a cost for him at all to deny these pleasures. And although this personal holiness is unique to John the Baptist, it marks his greatness. You'll remember in that passage in Matthew, Jesus said, but anyone who's in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And by that statement, we can extend this out to believers. If believers pursue personal holiness, they can achieve a level of greatness just like John the Baptist did by being filled with the Holy Spirit and being marked by personal holiness. A believer can do this as well. In fact, and you, if you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul makes a similar statement. Galatians chapter 1, and starting in verse 15, Paul says this. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. Paul here starts out his statement by saying, 
when he who had set me apart before I was born. You see, John the Baptist's birth is announced before his conception. And his unique calling to holiness, his unique calling to ministry, is not unique in the sense that it's just his exclusively. It's actually that of every believer. Paul says here he was set apart by God before he was born to do this work. And when it pleased him at the right time, he revealed Jesus to him. But Paul had already been signed, sealed, and delivered unto the Father. If you'll turn with me one book later into the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Paul actually extends this statement out to all believers who have been set apart in this unique way. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Even as he chose us in him. So not only is John the Baptist signed, sealed, and delivered in this unique way, but actually Paul and every believer by extent is signed, sealed, and delivered in this unique way. So this personal holiness is not to be understood as something that is unattainable for a believer. In fact, it is something that Paul considers the early church to be held accountable to. He says he has set you apart before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Other places in scripture, it says he has prepared beforehand good works in which we are to walk. Jesus does not call us to anything. God does not call us to anything that he does not empower us to first do. And so he empowers us with his Holy Spirit and then he calls us to this high calling of self-denial and missional advancement. This is the first rung of John the Baptist's greatness, his personal holiness. You can't skip this step, by the way. If you skip this step and you go down to try to do missional impact, you're going to find that you have a dead and dry mission. You're trying to fake it. You're trying to have success as the world defines success because missional impact can be seen by others, but it is not greatness before the Lord. Greatness before the Lord starts with the foundation of personal holiness, as it does here with John the Baptist. That is why we get this line in verse 15. He will be not one who engages in worldly pleasures. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This is true of every believer. The second part of John the Baptist's holiness that we see in this passage is his unique calling to ministry. His unique calling and his unique place in redemptive history. If you'll skip down with me to verse 17, it says, And he will go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And this is a really unique calling. This is not a calling for every single believer. To go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah is uniquely John the Baptist's role to fulfill. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we looked at this last week. John was the forerunner who's going to fulfill that prophecy. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus says, or God prophesies through the prophet Malachi, that there will be a forerunner before the Messiah comes. And then Jesus says of John the Baptist that he is that forerunner. And John the Baptist, through his ministry, says, I come here, but the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. He's going to be greater than I. He is saying that Jesus is the one who comes after him. He points to Jesus. That's his whole ministry. He is the forerunner. He's unique in this place in redemptive history. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, I'm going to flip there real quick. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6 we get the following statement. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes, 
And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree, with a decree of utter destruction. The last prophecy we have in the Old Testament is the prophecy that Elijah will come. And then the first prophecy we have in the New Testament is that this child is to come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. But then we get these conflicting accounts because in John chapter 1, they're questioning John the Baptist and they say, are you Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not. Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. Well, then who are you? But then Jesus says, in that same passage in Matthew 11, if you keep reading a little further, he says, I tell you that Elijah has already come, referring to John the Baptist. The angel's statements here helps to clarify what this prophecy means. We're not to understand that Elijah rises again from the dead and then starts walking around on the earth and prophesying. We are Christians. We don't believe in reincarnation hundreds of years after the fact. We believe in a resurrection, but not back to this world, back to everlasting life. Here, the angel makes the clarifying statement. He's exegeting the text. He's explaining to to his audience what's happening. He says, he will come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Those are key words. He doesn't come as Elijah. This is a prophecy. He comes in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Well, what does it mean to come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah? Well, to understand that, we have to know what Elijah did. We're not going to turn there, but you can look in your Bibles. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, and really through the end of 21 of 1 Kings. But Elijah has this very unique role in that he is doing miracles. He's doing the work of God. And he's uniquely placed in this role because he is to oppose a wicked king. He's to oppose Ahab, who sells out his throne to Jezebel and to a foreign people. He marries this wife, and as he marries this wife, the whole people of Israel begin to worship Baal. And Ahab is more wicked than any of the kings who have come before him. And Ahab stands against God, and he is not a king who pursues after God. And Elijah has the unique role of standing against a wicked king, calling out his sin, confronting his sin, and facing the consequences of that confrontation. And Elijah, when he comes in spirit and power, he calls down fire from heaven, and then he says, take all these prophets of Baal, all these 400 prophets, we're just going to clean house. We're going to kill all of them. And then word gets back to Jezebel that this happened, and Ahab and Jezebel pursue Elijah, and he has to hide away for a while. But this is the mark of his ministry. His whole ministry is not to be popular with the ruling authorities, but to call out their sin and call out their hypocrisy. That is the spirit and power of Elijah. His mission is a mission of preaching repentance. Turn away from your sin, King Ahab. Follow after the Lord your God. He says at that prophet, or at that confrontation with the prophets of Baal, he says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? Pick God or pick it, pick Baal. But stop this halfway nonsense. And John the Baptist, when he comes... He preaches a very similar ministry. How long will you go limping between two opinions? You're going to follow the Pharisees or you're going to follow God? Are you going to follow religious Judaism and try to earn your salvation? Or are you going to trust in God for the grace to save you? He comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah preaching the message of repentance. And as you would also have it, Herod, not the Herod we read about last week, the Herod who follows him, he confronts that Herod's sin. And that Herod's wicked wife, Herodias, has John the Baptist beheaded through a little plot that she develops. And so he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. His mission is a mission of repentance, 
and he stands against a wicked king who rules over Israel, and you see the pattern begin to unfold between Elijah and John the Baptist. He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he's unique in that his unique place in redemptive history is actually to be the forerunner for the Messiah. You see, Elijah does miracles. John the Baptist doesn't do any. So there are contrasts. There are differences between them. Elijah wins a mighty battle by calling down fire from heaven. John the Baptist is more of a water guy. He doesn't deal with fire too much. But he preaches repentance. He comes in the spirit and power, and he follows in the pattern of the prophet Elijah. He comes in the spirit and in the power. John the Baptist takes bold stances for the gospel of God. He's not afraid of offending anyone. He doesn't care if he offends the Pharisees. He doesn't care if he offends the Sadducees. He doesn't care if he offends the people he's preaching to. He lives in the wilderness. He can just go to a different part, wait for people to gather around him. He keeps preaching. Paul does something similar. Paul, if you look in Acts, he sees every group gathering as a church. He just goes and he starts preaching. When, in fact, when the people begin to rally up and get upset, typically that's when Paul goes, oh, preaching opportunity. And he goes and he starts preaching. John the Baptist is very similar. He lives out in the wilderness away from people and people are coming to him to hear this message of repentance. So he speaks with boldness. If you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 4, I want to I put this on the ground for us because although John the Baptist's call is unique in that he comes as a forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah, there is something about his unique calling that we can learn from. In Acts chapter 4, we're going to hear about the bold proclamation of the gospel that Peter and John do before the council. In Acts chapter 4, you can read this huge exchange between the Pharisees and Peter and John. And Peter, the guy who's denying Jesus just a few chapters earlier, is now standing boldly saying, I will not proclaim any other gospel. I will not be silenced. This is Jesus, whom you crucified, who we're preaching about. And they threaten them, and they say, no worries. And they threaten them again, and they say, no worries. They keep going, keep going. And then eventually they just ask them to stop, and then they send them on their way. And later you get this prayer. And you get this prayer really starting in verse 27 of chapter 4. And this is part of the prayer that the saints have together. It says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. By the way, this follows in the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done. They're acknowledging that God's will was done in the crucifixion of Jesus. And then in verse 29, what role do these people play? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name of your holy servant, Jesus. God ordains his will. He sends Jesus to die under Pontius Pilate, under Herod, by the Gentiles, at the will of the Jews. Then the believers respond to this by saying, Lord, give us boldness to preach this message. And then you can do the healing and the, the miracles. They're acknowledging that their role to play in the gospel advancement is just to preach. And they're praying for boldness to proclaim the message. They are not under the misinformation that they're converting anyone to salvation. God delivers the conversion. Paul says that it is Apollos who waters and Paul who plants, but it is God who produces the growth. 
the disciples here pray for boldness just to do their part. But their part is not to worry about conversion. Their part is not to worry about any of that. Their part is to be bold to proclaim the gospel message. John the Baptist's job was to be bold with the message that he had. And so Christians today, although we don't come in the spirit and power of Elijah as John the Baptist did, there is something to be learned from what he did, which is he stands boldly against wicked authorities to proclaim faithfully the word of God. And so the apostles follow in his footsteps. And they don't scour away when they are worried that they might offend someone with their gospel message. And it's not like they're doing it under their own power. They pray for boldness, even after they've now stood boldly. They pray for continued boldness, continued strength to endure. These are people who are going to face all kinds of hardship and persecution worse than, worse than a verbal lashing from their own religious group. They're going to be crucified. They're going to be burned at the stake. They're going to be sawed in two. They're going to be boiled alive. They're going to be isolated on islands. And if you read Fox's book of Christian martyrs, that doesn't stop when the cannon stops. Those brutal killings go on and on and on, and even today, they still happen. But they prayed for boldness, and they are granted that boldness, so that at the hour of their need, they do not deny Christ. In fact, they stand boldly for him. And so here's the question. What kind of message are they proclaiming that requires a boldness of delivery? The message is not soothing to dead ears. The message is not soothing to unbelievers. In fact, if you look at what most people would dress up the Christian message to be today, that God loves you and he has a plan for you and he really came for you, no demand on people to repent, to turn from their sin and believe on God. That is not a message you need boldness to declare. That's a message that you could tweet about and get thousands of likes. The message of the cross, the message of the gospel, is to repent of your sin and to believe on the Lord. Unless we're confused, this is not a message that we preach to other people. Paul says the, that the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Says that to Timothy, because he's encouraging Timothy of the message that Timothy is to proclaim. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Sinners hate hearing that they need saving. Paul hated hearing that he needed saving. In fact, he struck blind for a few days before his conversion really happens. It is an affront to wicked people. It is an affront to dead hearts. It is a shock to bring a dead heart back to life. But that is the message that you need boldness to proclaim. If you're worried about offending people with the gospel, that is a good worry to have, but it should never stop you from sharing the gospel. Social awkwardness and uh, the, the worry of a severed friendship should not stop you from proclaiming faithfully the word of God. In fact, these are crowns that one day in heaven you will earn because if you deny Jesus before others, he will deny you before the Father. But if you proclaim him faithfully, he will faithfully grab you into his arms and say that this one is mine, Lord. They were my servant, faithfully adhering to my word and my teachings. The apostles here pray for boldness. And John the Baptist was marked by his bold ministry to the people. So we can follow in his example, follow in his footsteps by not being a forerunner for Jesus, but we come after he's already made that victory known, and we actually just declare the victory that's already happened. We don't proclaim a victory that is coming. We proclaim one that has happened that we can stand confidently on. So we're not forerunners, but we have a similar message of repentance and belief on the Lord. Thirdly, the mission impact of John the Baptist is really the final rung of what makes him great before the Lord. 
He has personal holiness. That's the foundation. He has a unique calling. He's been set apart to do this work, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But that would all be for nothing if he had no missional impact that was of any significance. We know by this angel's declaration and by the gospel's testimony that John the Baptist has a great impact for the Lord. If you'll read with me in the passage in Luke, starting in verse 16, it says, Then he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It says, And he will go before him to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. If you remember, that's that same Malachi prophecy. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, I will send my forerunner before him in the spirit of Elijah. I will send Elijah before him. And he will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. And here, this prophecy echoes and quotes that prophecy and says that John the Baptist is to be this forerunner. His missional impact is unlike any of the other prophets that you will read about, because most of the other prophets in the Old Testament have very difficult, very hard, and very sad ministries, in that it's really them, a few disciples, and a whole lot of unconverted Israelites that they're preaching to. John the Baptist has guaranteed success before he's even born of his ministry. The angel declares over him, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And we need to quickly define what many means. Many does not mean all. Not all of the Israelites are converted. In fact, if you read Romans 11, Paul has to actually make a defense of the fact that this gospel message is true despite the fact that not all the Israelites have been converted. Why would we believe that the Gentiles could be saved, Paul, if it's falling on deaf ears with the Jews? And Paul makes his case for that there. But we know that the many at least can't mean everyone because a lot of them reject Jesus. Even today, the Jewish nation at large is in rejection of the Messiah that came. Not all, but many. So what then do we mean here by many? Well, he could be looking down the prophecy of history and saying that many of the Israelites will be converted to faith, turn to this Savior, because the message of repentance that he ushers in is the one that we even preach today. Or he could be referring to that group that Paul refers to in Romans 11, that in the last days after the time of the Gentiles has been complete, a whole host of Jewish people are coming back to faith, and this will usher in the end times. He could be referring to that. But who is the many? It's not all but he has promised success in his mission by the angel. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. His missional impact is to return people back to the Lord. In fact, we just finished the book of Hosea in Hosea chapter 3 verse 5 and in Hosea 14 verse 1, as well as peppered all over Hosea, we get the language of return to the Lord your God believe on him. The Israelites are told to return. That's the word that we get in the English. They're told to return. It means to walk away from their sin and turn back to the Lord that was always their God. The Gentiles get a different word. They're told to turn to the Lord. Not to return, but to turn. 
Because what's unique about redemptive history and what's unique even here in Luke, remember, he's a Gentile writing to a Gentile. And he's saying that the Jews, they play this unique place in redemptive history in that they always had the promise. It was theirs. And they walked away and now they're called to return. But the Gentiles, who never had the promise in the first place, they're just told to turn. They're not returning to anything because for them to return is to return to sin. They're told to turn from their sin and to believe on the Lord. They get two different words that both describe repentance. To repent as a Jew is to believe on what they always ought to have believed. To repent as a Gentile is to believe on a totally new gospel message. It's to believe on something they've never heard before. They're told to turn to God. This is classic biblical language to describe repentance. Because repentance and belief on the Lord is not just a confession of faith. It's a total lifestyle transformation. We talk about this a lot, but Jesus is described as Lord more than any other description in the Bible. If he's not Lord, he's not Savior. He can't save you from a verbal confession if you're going to still walk in disobedience. He demands total obedience. In fact, we get a description later of what it looks like to return. and says he's going to turn the disobedient to the obedient. He's going to turn them in this unique way. The disobedient turn to the obedient. This is describing vertical repair in the relationship between God and man. Disobedience is rebellion towards God. It's stubbornness. It's outright rebellion against the king. Obedience is to walk in the laws and statutes that he has delivered and placed in everyone's heart. Obedience is faith. Obedience is to turn and believe on the Lord, or as an Israelite, to return and to walk in obedience. Jesus doesn't come to undo the law. He comes to fulfill the law, which means those laws that he gives, we ought to follow. Don't have any other gods before him, right? We know the Ten Commandments if you've grown up in church. He's doing vertical relational repair between the people and him, between God and sinners. But what's also unique is he says he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And there's much debate about what this is talking about. Are these metaphorical hearts to metaphorical fathers and children? Or it could be as simple as talking about horizontal relationship repair. Because the gospel repairs broken relationships horizontally. In fact, as a society, if you look where the gospel goes, you see human relationships repaired all over the place. As the gospel goes to the Christians in Rome, you get Gentiles and Jews in the same church. They have disagreements about what to eat, but there's relational repair that can happen between those things. In the book of Corinthians, we get marriages that are being restored as the people are walking away from sexual sin and into purity with Christ. In Ephesians, you get relationships between masters and slaves and husbands and wives being repaired and children obeying their parents. And you get this horizontal relational repair. Now notice... The gospel is not the horizontal relational repair. The gospel is Jesus dying on the cross for your sin. The production of that gospel flowing out is the horizontal relational repair. If you put one before the other, just like putting success before personal holiness, you cannot have that. It's an unstable place. In fact, you can't have horizontal relational repair without a biblical worldview, without a view of sin, without a view of man that agrees with the Bible. Because the Bible's view of man is that men are sinners and people sin, therefore relationships are broken. 
And so you can't treat the symptom, you have to treat the disease. The disease is the wicked heart. And when you treat the wicked heart, the outflow of that new heart is a body of believers that are unified in Christ. And if you're unified in Christ, then really nothing can separate you. It's actually really hard to have horizontal relationship breaks when you've been unified as one body because you've actually been joined together. You're the wild olive tree that's now been grafted in. It's hard to be now broken apart because the Lord, by his will, has grafted you into the native tree. You are now unified with the church. You're unified with believers. There's horizontal relational repair as well. But it cannot go where the gospel has not gone. And you can't prioritize it over the gospel. And lastly, the impact of John the Baptist's mission is, as he concludes here at the end of verse 17, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He says he's going to prepare a people before the Lord. Now, what do we make of this? John the Baptist, remember, is the forerunner. He is the one who's going to go before Jesus Christ, and he's going to prepare these people so that they are ripe to receive the message of salvation. In Romans 9.23, Paul says that he has prepared beforehand vessels of mercy, which he's going to show his glory in. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, we get a similar description that the Lord has a remnant people in Israel that have been prepared beforehand. Remember, I talked about the fact that John the Baptist is guaranteed missional success when he preaches the gospel, when he preaches repentance. But his job isn't to convert anyone, it's to make ready a people so that when they hear about Jesus, they can believe on him. In fact, people who follow John's ministry when Jesus comes, they leave John and they start following Jesus because John has done his job. In fact, as soon as Jesus shows up on the scene, and this is why he's a very underrated person in these stories, when Jesus comes, John is pretty much cast to the side. And that's right, that's fitting, because Jesus is much greater than John. But John the Baptist's ministry is a ministry of all believers, even today after Jesus, is to make ready a people prepared. Because Jesus' word is still going out. And so the job of Christians and the job of the church is to prepare people so that when they hear the gospel, they can believe. We don't wed these people to God. God weds them to himself. He's doing all that work already. John the Baptist's job is not to do anything. It's to make ready a people prepared, to present them before the Lord. As Paul says that the people that he has brought up in his churches and through his missions are his offering to the Lord. He has made ready a people prepared for the Lord. And he is just faithfully carrying out his mission. That is guaranteed evangelistic success. Guaranteed success. So why do we evangelize? Why did John the Baptist evangelize? Because before he was even conceived in the womb, an angel came down to his father and said, he's going to have success in his mission as it goes forth. And before you and I were ever born, Jesus says over his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we get a book of Revelation where it says that people of every tribe, tongue, and nation will one day worship the Lord God. And Paul in the book of Acts is struggling with the fact that the Corinthian church isn't buying into the gospel and he's ready to leave and Jesus comes into a vision with him and says, stay in that city, Paul, because I have many people still there to be won over to salvation. Guaranteed success of evangelism is the reason that we stay in the fight. In fact, if we did not have guaranteed success, the argument could be made that we should despair. 
Why do we do the things that we do? Because Jesus says that his word will never return empty. If you preach the gospel, it is guaranteed success. Not 100% success, but many. It will have much success. It will go forth and it will do everything that it was intended to do. And so as the angel preaches this over John the Baptist, he says he will be personally holy and right before the Lord. He has a unique calling as the forerunner in redemptive history to come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And then he says that he will have a missional impact unlike any of the prophets who came before him. But then Jesus clarifies and he says that, but the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John the Baptist was. So what are we to do as Christians? We are to look at John the Baptist as a unique player in redemptive history, but not as one who led a mission that was unattainable by any Christians. In fact, if you look at church history, you will find many Christians who proclaim the message of John the Baptist, the repentance and the belief on the Lord Jesus Christ, and who go and they do missional impact all over inland China and into the Americas. And they go all over the world proclaiming this gospel message under the conviction that the Lord's word will never return void and that he has people in those nations already pre-plucked out and set to the side. And he is waiting for us to go preach the gospel to them so that they can hear and believe. We have guaranteed success in our mission, church. And so we should go forward proclaiming the gospel that sinners need Christ, reminding ourselves that we are the first and foremost of the sinners, lest we think of ourselves too highly, but always preaching with boldness this message, whether that be in your day-to-day lives in one-on-one relationships, whether that be in an evangelism ministry that you have, whether you are the hands and feet of Christ that go forth seeking that opportunity to engage with a non-believer, whether you do apologetics with people who are skeptics at your work or people who believe something else, you are called to preach boldly the words of Christ, to repent and to believe. This is our mission. And good news, it is guaranteed to work. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you say that your word never returns void. I thank you for the truth of that promise, Lord, because your kingdom come, your will be done. And your will is that we follow in your commandments, that we preach your word faithfully, Lord, the things that you have already called us to. And so, Lord, I pray as the apostles prayed in Acts chapter 4, that we would have boldness to proclaim this message. I don't presume to have any boldness on my own. In fact, I know as I examine my own heart and my own life, I see all kinds of evidences of a lack thereof. But Lord, I know that where I am weak, you are strong. In fact, you say that your power is made perfect in weakness. So Lord, I pray for boldness for my tongue and for the hearts and the minds and the mouths of every single person under the sound of my voice. That they would have boldness to go forth this week, this month, this year, 20 years from now, Lord, that your spirit would be with them to be bold for your name's sake. That we would not fear the rejection of man, but rather we would fear him who can destroy body and soul. Because to fear him is to be wise and to fear him is to be great before him. And Lord, we pray that we would achieve a greatness that the world can't destroy and people can't take and that we would store up our treasures to be great in that place one day, Lord that you would give us a fixed mindset on that eternal destination and that we could fixate on that so that we could be bold for your name's sake. 
in your spirit and in your power, Lord. Give us the strength as we walk out in obedience. In your name, amen.